I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZone. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to another episode of UpZoned. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and joined with me today is our regular co-host, Chuck Marone. We're both back from a little bit of a hiatus. Hey, Chuck, how's it going? Awesome. I know the show got taken over last week by <laughs> some rapscallions who just abducted with our show, but no. It, we always envision this show to be more than just you and me, but it's kind of fun when it is you and me because it's it's always delightful. I know, it is fun, but they did a very good job taking over the show, so I will, I'll give it to them this time. There's a pretty deep bench here. Uh, in the organization, so it's nice to it's nice to chat with them. And and they talked about your team. The, they uh, did. I know the uh, hated Kansas City Royals. Um, <laughs> not hated. They're they're Speak lovable for yourself. Losers. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sorry that that you've become <laughs> such a sore loser. <laughs> <laughs> we did finish. I mean, the season's not over yet. It will be over when people hear this, but we will. I think the twins will finish last in our division, which oh. you know seems like oh that's bad. We were expected to be first, so that that's worse than where Kansas City was, where I think Kansas City was expected to finish fourth and finish third, and you're like, well, yay, but still, you know, not very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least you were expected to be bad. We were expected to be World Series contenders, and we are horribly pathetic. So that that has been it's been a very painful year in that sense. Yeah, well, I don't think many of us Kansas Cityans will ever get over the last Super Bowl <laughs> that we experienced, and hopefully we can win another Super Bowl and get past that. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk about downtown stadiums and stuff, but but by the time people get this, I will have been to Kansas City. We will have spent time in the downtown amongst other places, and I'm, I'm just really psyched for it. It's going to be fun. And it's you guys do a great job, you personally and, and, and Gould Evans, but then also just like the greater Kansas City area of Strong Towns advocates in turning out. I mean, we always have huge, huge crowds when we come to KC, so I'm psyched. I'm, I'm really excited that we were able to put together this event and getting people out. I've, it's going to be really fun. And we're going to the World War One Museum. We are. So that's we will talk about fun. it in a future episode because I'm... <laughs> well, people don't know this, but we usually record this at a set time on, on Friday afternoon and it is now an hour past when we usually start. And we have spent <laughs> probably 50 minutes of that talking about World War One and the World War Museum and, and uh, this type of stuff. So I'm super psyched. Yeah, we just spent an hour talking about war strategy. <laughs> Uh, so I was thinking we should we should have just recorded that uh, and made it the up zone and we yeah. would have a lot of very confused listeners. Yeah, we would. <laughs> so All right, I let's would talk and, uh, yeah, we'll talk I've, energy. Talking energy today. So I will mm -hmm. get into the article. Um this is, you know, related in some ways because it is it has to do with geopolitics. Um, we are going to be covering an article that was published in Bloomberg Business Week by Stephen Sadinsky, and it is entitled, Europe's Energy Crisis is Coming for the Rest of the World, Too. 
So the article opens with a very sobering statement that millions of people around the globe will feel the impact of soaring natural gas prices this winter. Nations are really more reliant than ever on natural gas uh, to heat homes and power industries due to efforts to quit coal. Natural gas emits about half the carbon dioxide as coal when it's burned, so there's been a lot of interest in industries to switch over to reduce emissions. However, there is now a shortage, and countries are currently in a race to outbid one another before the cold months to refuel depleted stocks. So in Europe, we're really seeing governments warning their citizens of blackouts, and some factories are being forced to shut down. Um, unfortunately, wind turbines are not producing enough output to, to fill the gap due to mild weather patterns, and they have uh, nuclear plants, but they're aging and have been you know, in the process of being phased out for quite a while now. So this is all making uh, gas more necessary and more expensive. And this crisis is causing secondary effects uh, in other countries. So major exporters like Russia are moving to actually hang on to their natural gas rather than selling it. Asian importers are snapping up dirtier fuels as a precaution like coal and heating oil. And uh, Korea and Brazil are already starting to see utility cost inflation. So this is, I think, an important topic to cover because, you know, we talk a lot about local communities and how they function, but it's important to consider the context that local communities are interacting in and these really big industrial complexes that we are all forced to reckon with. Uh, they're very complicated. They impact more than just heating your home or driving your car. They also impact uh, food production and the cost of food and I'm sure all all kinds of other things. You know, energy is really connected with our entire way of life. So definitely um, a topic that I think is way out of my area of expertise personally, but important to kind of consider how complicated systems impact us all at the local level. I feel like the the underlying story here is the fragility of of these systems. And you know, this article, I think deals with some of the the symptoms and the blowback of that. If we run parallel to this article for a second, I think we see this now in like supply chain things here in the u s. Not only we're we experiencing inflation and there's a whole bunch of narratives of why inflation is happening. You know, and is it transitory? Is it not? Is it going to show up in wages? Is it not? Is it part of a a boom post pandemic, or is it you know something that is going to be now endemic to our, our our overall system for a while? You you look though, and I think what is undeniable is that the underlying supply chain issues are real. And you know, some people are saying, well, we need to build more ports because there's more stuff coming in. And I'm like, it, it just didn't just happen like overnight. You know, it's what you see is that. Is it a very complicated thing to uh, rely on distant producers of tiny microchips and individual parts for a washing machine, and uh, you know your your frozen cod that was caught in Norway being shipped to a factory in Indonesia to process? All of these things are like steps in a global supply chain, and when the coffee shop up the street can't get enough people to work there at the wages that they're paying, 
And, you know, again, lots of theories as to why that is too, is unemployment is benefits are too generous or the wages aren't high enough or, you know, everybody's got their pet theory as to why this is. But the reality is, is that we all experience that. We can all see that. We can all watch that. Now step back and understand that that's being magnified over and over and over and over again all around the world. Whether it is, you know, people working at the local coffee shop or people working at the factory somewhere else or people, you know, on the ship that's delivering the goods or in the port loading and unloading them. You just have this large amount of economic dislocation affecting everything. If you look at Europe and the energy situation, Europeans in general have been paying much higher costs for energy for a long time. And most of that is not market-based. Some of it is, you know, this is not widely known and understood outside of mark energy markets, but, but most energy in the world is traded globally in dollars. And so, you know, if you are, you know, if you are Japan, buying oil from Saudi Arabia, you have to convert all of that into dollars in order to make the transaction. You can't pay in yen, you can't pay in any other currency, you don't pay in euro, you know, it's it's traded in dollars. And so for a long time, you know, Europe had dollar volatility, they had energy market volatility, they had economic, you know, political volatility, a lot of their 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 oil uh, and their natural gas comes from pipelines from Russia which you know has had a lot of political volatility including defaulting on their currency and and you know political strife and and all this for decades and so they've essentially like built in an economic buffer by having really high energy prices kind of through taxation i say that because if you live in europe high prices are not fun right like you're not celebrating high energy prices but you do have like multiple dimensions of strategy you can use to adapt to that. Most Europeans can choose to not drive. They can walk places. They can take public transportation because it's set up that way. They can lower their uh, energy burn rate. A lot of them have you know much smaller houses than we do and, and, and have much less kind of commitment for energy consumption than the American lifestyle. If you switch back over here, Whatever the cause of the energy volatility is, you know, like I, I own energy stocks right now. I did, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I made the, you know, in retrospect, really like boneheaded decision to buy a bunch of oil options when oil was dipping at the very beginning. And then, you know, oil was down to like $20 a barrel. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to load up on stock. And then oil went to minus 40 and I got like kicked in the, uh, you know what, um, it was horrible. Like I, I, that was really, really bad. Oil is now up to like eighty dollars a barrel, and you know, for the patient person uh, who has purchased, you know, a, at a low price, and has ridden that up, there's some satisfaction there on being in, in the right side of that curve for once. You look at that shift, though. That's a dramatic, dramatic shift. What is our capacity here to respond to that? If the standard American suburban you know, dwelling person was told tomorrow that gas is going to rise to be $6 a gallon or, um, you know, the, the fuel to heat your home uh, is going to go from $200 a month to $800 a month. 
through all kinds of different mechanisms, right? Inflation of the US dollar, you know, the devaluation of the dollar on these global markets, increased global demand, capacity that has been reduced because prices were minus $40 a barrel. And why would you drill for more oil if you are losing money on every barrel? There's all these like complex reasons that come together. What, what we have now is we have like no capacity to respond. We have we have no like you can't shift and change your lifestyle, your approach in any way. And so regardless of what like your pet theory is of what caused this or how we get out of it, the reality is is like we have zero resilience towards it. And you know, this article goes through the European aspect of this energy crisis, but I can't help but just come back to the idea that for most of Europe, this will be very painful and it will be very difficult to deal with. But at least there are like alternatives for individuals and for small businesses and for local governments to actually deal with this. In the US, there's one option and one option only, and that is uh, we have to come up with whatever we need to do rip apart half of Canada, fight a war in the Middle East. Like, I don't know what it is, but we got to keep oil prices low because we have no viable backup. Well, and that's that's what happens when you build cities around a technology that is reliant on one, one source of energy primarily. And I know people, you know, talk a lot about the transition to electric vehicles, but <laughs> I'm unsure that that necessarily solves the many other problems that we could be dealing with. It's interesting to me to think about just the energy industry and its volatility because growing up, it, it seems like people are always talking about the price of gas and it goes up and it goes down. And it's kind of just like this, this uh, expectation that this is a volatile resource um, even in regular, quote unquote, regular times, you know, prices are always fluctuating. Now that we've had this pandemic and I mean, it, there's an numerous number of <laughs> complex reasons why we are seeing all these different second order effects, um, you know, I, I would say, namely just at a global scale, the fact that we significantly reduced energy use and that created a number of effects. And now it's ramping up again. When you have these really complicated global systems, it, it's, and it's already a volatile industry, it's no surprise that we are seeing all kinds of impacts. However, I, I don't know that in the United States or, or really anywhere, you can completely detach yourself from reliance on these global industries. I, I like to think that there are ways that locally you can make yourself more resilient, but but it does kind of seem like communities are, you know, trapped in this scheme of, of this is where our energy comes from. Um, but perhaps there are ways to become more more resilient. I think as you mentioned, the way we build cities is one layer of being more resilient to volatile industries and the art our ability to have access to needed resources. Um, and that's the benefit of having older cities, right? <laughs> they, it was built during a time where they had to walk places and, you know, it mattered how close you are and how proximate you were, you know, from the grocery store to home or wherever you were going. So that's, 
very different from many communities in the United States where we've we've built after the car was normalized into American life and uh, we kind of have this expectation that gas will always be available and we will be able to get from point A to point B <laughs> being, you know, 10 miles away from one another and we'd be able to get to that very quickly. So that is definitely a concern. Um, I, I don't know that there is an answer to how you deal with that. It's kind of more of an unwinding and I think response. And I, I think that ultimately there is going to have to be some kind of local level and even individual family level response to how you uh, react to changes like this. I feel like this is the tension that we have, um, you know, kind of underlying everything. You started out talking about electric vehicles and I've always found our conversation about electric vehicles to be filled with um, fanciful thinking, let's just say like, um, you know, not, not very like realistic approach. Yet, you know, the, the the current infrastructure debate we're having at the federal level kind of assumes the electrification of the entire fleet and, you know, equates that with the greening of the fleet. I know that here in Minnesota, we're leading, in, in many ways, leading the country uh, in changing over to, you know, quote unquote, green kind of technology, solar fields, wind energy, uh, alternate sources of energy that would not be burning fossil fuels. Yet, you know, we're having debates about uh, natural gas, the role of natural gas, and also, you know, the role of storage, which is still this like problem that we've not solved. If you look at uh, Tesla as a, as a company, as a stock, Tesla stock, and I don't know where it is right now, I haven't looked at it for a while, but at one point recently, it was valued at more than every major car company in the world like added together. Like you put Ford and, and GM and Chrysler and Fiat and like you add them all together and Tesla had a bigger market cap, even though it produced like 1% of the, the, the cars in the US or some like insanely small number. It, it was crazy. And when you dig into that Tesla story, what you get from like the true believers and true believers are always suspect, you know, but, but if what you get from the true believers is that the thing driving Tesla stock is not the automobile manufacturer. It's the fact that there's going to be a Tesla battery in every house. Every house in America will have a $10,000 Tesla battery in it. That will be this like huge storage device that we will fill up with juice when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing and, and then provide all this like immense reserve capacity for when it's not. And in some ways, I think like that's a beautiful vision, like great, like let, that's, a, that's a beautiful vision. Let's ignore the life cycle of a, of a windmill and let's ignore the life cycle issues of solar panels and where those things come from and the types of metals that they need. And, and let's like ignore all that and let's just focus on clean versus dirty, fossil fuel versus not. Like this is a great vision. Why does anyone think that if you have all this excess spare capacity that is needed to run these things, that without any other kind of adjustment to the way we live or the way we conduct business or the way that humans are just wired to approach things, myself included, I'm not exempting myself from this, that that spare capacity wouldn't somehow be utilized 
in a way that is going to negate whatever effects people think they're going to get. I don't know anyone who, in the absence of higher prices for energy or, or you know, greater transaction costs or what have you, um, if we just make it like as dirt cheap as possible, are not going to have five TVs on all the time and you know just drive their car wherever they want with the cheap energy. It, there ultimately needs to be feedback loops in the system that is going to have people. I think economists would call this externalities, like pay the real cost. I think I would just say, like, you know, have some type of local feedback loop that does not, in a sense, subsidize one style of living and development and, and energy consumption regime over another. And, you know, the electric car conversation just seems completely out of sync with that fundamental reality of humanity. Well, yeah, and let's talk about, you know, the other component of this that could impact people at the family and local level, which is the ability to heat your home and the cost of heating your home. I I think it's worth mentioning that architecture in the past um, used to, you know, really focus on kind of I guess you would call it climate control. And I think in some aspects, the architecture profession has gotten back to that, although it's not the norm in uh, home building necessarily. But a lot of older homes are intended to react to the climate extremes. Uh, My house so that- is in, in Minnesota is east and west facing. And in the summer when it's hot, you just open up the front door and you open up the back door and the wind just blows right through. And like, I mean, I'm not saying that it's like chilly cool, but it certainly is cooler and uh, my house naturally cools. Yeah. Our, our house is an old duplex and um, it was a duplex that at some point got converted to a single family house. So we have two heaters, you know, <laughs> we have two AC units, two of everything. And right now we don't have an AC unit that that is hooked up to the first floor. And we haven't gotten one because for the past couple of years, our first floor stays naturally cool for a variety of different reasons. But, um, you know, it, it hasn't gotten to the point that we actually need to get an AC unit to run it. And so I think that that, um, it, it's important to note that, that how we actually build our communities impacts how much energy we require to just have basic comfort. And I'm sure our expectations for how much we're <laughs> uh, controlling the temperature indoors has changed since you know 100 years ago. Right. I feel like there's two great resources here. The first one is, is just this beautiful little book by Steve Mozan called The Original Green. And I quote from it extensively in, in my first book in Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution, because it's it's a he really explores this idea of what does it mean to be green and how were our ancestors green and not out of some sense of environmental justice, but green just because of their very nature, because that's, that's what you had to do to sustain a civilization over time. I feel like the insights in that book are enormous. The, the other one, you know, The Long Emergency by James Howard Kunstler, I think describes the, the, the intersection of energy and climate in the, the best way that I've ever read, there's a certain discrediting that the peak oil crowd has experienced over the last 
decade or 15 years. The, the same way that there's a discrediting that the um, hard money people have experienced over the last 15, 20 years. You know, the idea that we need fiscal responsibility, we shouldn't just be borrowing endless sums of money, we shouldn't be monetizing the debt by printing money. You know, the people who believe that have become laughingstocks of the, the current system. People who believe that uh, energy is going to become harder and harder to access have become laughingstocks of the system, largely because we've been able to find these like unique sources and bring them out of the ground. And and these two systems, the financial system and the energy system have interacted in ways that has made it easy to, you know, pump debt into, for example, companies that drill shale oil out of the ground. And even though they weren't running a profit, allow them to continue to recycle their debt and, and continue their operations. It feels like that criticism is a lot like criticizing the person who jumped out of a plane without a parachute, but has yet to hit the ground, you know, for, uh, oh yeah, this is dangerous, right? Like I'm having a good time. Like what's the problem? And it's like, well, the ground is fast approaching. And, and at some point, you know, the pain of that is going to be felt. And I, I kind of feel that about both the financial and the, the energy system in concert with each other. You look at this article, the Europe energy crisis is about to be globalized and, and experienced elsewhere. And what Jim talks about in the long emergency is just the volatility. Like he calls it the craziness. He calls it the craziness in the climate, the craziness in the economy. Um, what you start to see is that these complex systems start to wobble. And it's not that they they like completely fall apart and you and I are living in bunkers trying to you know, eke out a living on salamanders and what have you. Um, you know, it's not like it's become uh, the road or something like that. But the systems start to not work the way that we're used to them working. I ordered a, a new freezer and I would have expected it to be at the place in 48 hours because that's what it would have been like three years ago. And six months later, my freezer finally shows up. Those are all like the wobbling of these really complex interwoven systems. And when they start to not work, that's what happens. And I feel like this article is just illuminating like the, the wave of that starting to sweep the globe. Two bits of advice. One, try not to ascribe like a simple, rational, like this is what happened and that caused this kind of thing, because you will miss what's going on. What's going on is like much bigger and much more complex than that. If anyone says like, well, this is happening because Turkey just did this thing over here, or, you know, Biden administration did this, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, like the simple explanation is almost certainly wrong and disastrously wrong. Yeah, you can't blame one person for no, or, or one event <laughs> for very co complex issues like this. But then just also recognize that because it's so complex and because it's so intertwined, the only way to really deal with this is to get local and get resilient. Get you know build like locally resilient systems, so that when you do experience this craziness, you have options, choices, resiliency, adaptability, flexibility, all kind of fallback positions that our economy has really robbed us of over the last 70 years. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that one of the one of the things that I thought about a lot when reading this article was their mention of how this impacts the food system and can cause food inflation. And I think that is that's a really important point and takeaway from this because there are a lot of ways to try to replace uh, the food that you consume 
and try to detach it from these kind of these global systems. And it's never going to be foolproof um, or, you know, replace your entire diet. But I mean, to me that there are lots of ways to try to bring that back down to a more local level. And a lot of that has to do with also establishing social networks for where you can buy things more locally and, you know, get to know people who actually produce food or try producing your own food. Um, You know, even for people who know how to hunt, I feel like all of those skills are always always good to have, always good to know how to cultivate your own food um, or know people who know how to cultivate food so that you could just at least try to be more resilient. Right, right. Are you, I don't want to I don't want to put you on the spot, but are you too young for the Arab Spring? Like, is that a, a term that resonates with you? I know the um, term, but I'm too young to okay. really know about it, that. It, basically, after 2008 and the, um, you know, you you had the, the Gulf War, 2004, you know, 9-11 attacks, Gulf War. You had 2008 economic crisis. And uh, you had all this kind of global tumult uh, around that. And in 2010, you started to see countries, largely Arab countries, have these social uprisings. I mean, the uh, the old regime of Egypt was one that got wiped out. Mubarak got taken out of power and, and the black, uh, I, I can't think of the name of the party, but it's a party that was like long suppressed by them, uh, was able to take power for a while. Um, anyway, this whole like thing was called the Arab Spring. And the Arab Spring, you had like people in the streets setting themselves on fire. And if you dig into that, a lot of the impetus for that was this kind of unraveling, this kind of craziness. Um, people were all of a sudden having to pay four or five times for corn and corn-based you know, tortillas and stuff like this that they hadn't in the past. And it was like, I'm starving. I can't feed my family. And uh, it led to, you know, uh, social unrest that toppled regimes and has given us, you know, the, the, the strife in Syria and Lebanon and other places today that we see. These kind of things we're not used to in the U.S. And I think it's going to be, especially in this time of our, our seemingly inability to have, you know, basic conversations with each other, it's going to be... Uh, I don't want to say interesting, but it's it's going to be, um, I think, a, a a thing to look at to see how we handle the inflation and the volatility in prices and the inability to get certain things on shelves that we're used to, and and if that starts to creep into gasoline and basic supplies and that becomes like a way of life here, something we have to adjust to, um, that is going to be a, a a a very rude awakening for many Americans. This is something the rest of the world has had to deal with and, and has dealt with in, in you know really horrific ways sometimes. It's not something that we've had to deal with for a century or more. Um, I think those times might be back now, and I think that might be part of this transition. And we're not really ready to cope with it, either culturally or physically. Yeah. Well. So happy since- day. Yeah, yeah let's, well, leave, huh? let's leave it on a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries, everybody. Don't panic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, let, let's leave it at that um, because we'll see. We'll see how things go for the next we will few see. years and That's exactly how right. things unravel. You know, it's a complicated world out there. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think the best thing that people can do is is try to just find ways to be resilient in their own life. 
Um, and, you know, finding ways to find local food is one way you can do that. It's one, one thing that I'm particularly interested in. Um, so it never hurts to do that. We, we, but we don't have to go into full prepper mode. Not yet, right? <laughs> um, mild prepper mode. My, um, mild, right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, um, let's go into the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, watching, reading, anything that's been taking up our time these days. Um, Chuck, what has been, what have you been up to? You've probably been traveling a lot. Um, are you getting into any good books or anything? Yeah, I've been traveling with the, doing the book tour. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to get to listen to books and read a lot more. I read a Grisham book when I was gone and on the last trip. And I got home and I discovered that my wife had gotten the same book from the library. And um, we talked about it and she didn't like it. And I did. And so I'm assuming I was wrong if in some way. It was his, his latest book, so whatever that is, if you're into Grisham, I actually thought it was enjoyable. I just finished um, the latest book from Bob Woodward. He writes these books about um, the presidency and basically like almost like reporting as events unfold, like what people were saying and what they were doing. And his latest book is called Peril. I've read all his books through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, and now uh, through the Trump administration, transition to Biden. And... I'm not a news junkie. Like I'm not someone who gets into the horse race of politics and and you know watches cable news for like the latest uh, positioning in the House infrastructure debate. You know, like I don't care. Like it's all yeah. boring to me. <laughs> That's probably healthy. <laughs> no, I think it's healthy. Yeah. I do. I do happen to like Woodward's reporting. I do happen to like the way he does this, and it's funny because he drew a lot of criticism for making George Bush look like a human. Because back in George W. Bush, they're like, why would you write that he's competent in any way? Like it, people got on the left got really mad at him. People on the, the conservatives got really mad because, you know, Obama was a, a, a competent person and a competent president. You may not agree with his politics, but he was thoughtful about how he went about them. And, you know, for the most part, like you might disagree with the decisions, but make good decisions. I think, you know, Woodward, like illuminating the thought process was fascinating to me. Um, and then, you know, in Trump... He captured a lot of the zeitgeist of Trump and took a little bit of criticism because, you know, he he made Trump again a human. Like, here's what's going on. And some of this is crazy, but some of this is not. And and here's kind of the inner workings of this. And I, I just found it to be very good reporting. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I've never read those books, but I've heard about them. And, you know, as we're <laughs> you've got me thinking about history quite a bit today because we spent like an hour talking about history and that might actually be worth some time just to go into recent history and kind of wrap my head around what I maybe didn't understand because I was too young to understand. You mentioned all these presidencies and it's like, you know, probably the first presidency that was real to me was Obama, but I don't think I was old enough to vote. So, um, you know, it's like, there, there really haven't been a lot of presidencies that I've been old enough to to really uh, see for myself or, you know, experience. I joined the Army in 1990, and George H.W. Bush was president, so George Bush Sr. And that was the first presidency to me that I was, like, keenly aware of, right? 
you know, Reagan was when I was a kid and I, my dad said that I, you know, as a, as a baby sat on his lap and watched the Watergate hearings. I, oh, really? Don't remember, don't remember any of that. Yeah. But that was, my dad said we did that. Um, but I remember when Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter because my parents wanted Carter really bad. I remember crying um, because they were sad. But like, I don't know. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> you were like, oh, <laughs> who, no, we who lost. Who knows? <laughs> right. My very first election was uh, Bush and Clinton, and I voted for Bush in, in 92 and, and lost. And I've pretty much been a loser ever since. I Aww. I think I voted. <laughs> I think in, in like national elections or statewide elections, I've probably voted for the winner like three times in 30 years. You know? Really? Yeah. I never win. I always pick losers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, I'm happy well. to do it. I'm used yeah. to it. It's good. Well, what are you gonna do? So give me your down zone. Well, my down zone um is not a book. I I just took a week off and which is why I wasn't doing up zone last week. We um we were actually supposed to go out of the country, but got a little bit nervous going out of the country, just the idea of leaving the country. I know some people who have gotten stuck not being able to come back. So we well, thought- if you go to would... someplace delightful, getting stuck is not the worst thing. I know. Yeah. That, well, <laughs> yeah, that's We were like, point. if we get stuck in Venice, I guess we'll cope. You know? Yeah. Oh, what a bummer that would be. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, so we actually just went down to Benville, Arkansas, one of ah. my favorite places to go to. Um, and we spent a week mountain biking. So I will say that I feel like I need a vacation from my vacation because <laughs> we biked basically the entire time all day, um, which was really fun. We did lots of different trails. I have a much better bike than I used to have. So it's, I, I feel like um, men in particular get very interested in the specs of their bikes. And I couldn't really tell you what kind okay. of bike this Sexist is. Sexist generalization, <laughs> yeah, but sorry. I, I will allow it. Yeah, I'll allow if it. you'll I think allow it's it. generally true. It's yes. just a general observation that I've had amongst um, the biking community. And uh-huh. I personally am not somebody who um, takes great note of the specifications of my bike. So uh, don't don't ask me anything about it because I don't really know. But what I do know is that it is really fun. I can actually jump with it uh, and do real trails and do like really cool downhill routes. Um, we went out to Eureka Springs and in Eureka Springs, they have like a shuttle service where a guy with a bus you give him like $20 and for the entire day, he will shuttle you and your bike from the bottom of, I guess you would call it a mountain. I, I think they, I think it's the Ozark mountains, but they'll bring you from the bottom all the way to the top. And the trails are intense in Eureka Springs. It's really, really cool. So we spent one day just doing that. And we met some other people who were biking and I don't know. It's always fun to just go biking and you end up riding with other people and meeting people from all, all over the place. Um, and especially Northwest Arkansas really attracts people from all over the country. You'd be surprised how many people yeah. uh, I've go heard. there. I've heard it's fantastic. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. We actually mm-hmm. met somebody from Minnesota who was biking there. Huh. Yeah. Someone lost then apparently. Yeah. Very lost. Very lost. Yeah. Yeah, we don't. We were told don't go south. Like I, you know. <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't have my uh, 
my Chuck the real estate agent card uh, to give him yeah. to promote moving to Brainerd. Moving to Brainerd. <laughs> yeah. I'm bringing, I'm bringing a portfolio of properties for you to look at. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really funny. We actually did, ac we accidentally walked into a real estate agency office when we were in Bentonville because they had a sign outside that that made it look like it was an art gallery. And I guess I'm just oh, one of those suckers great. that yeah. <laughs> I, f I fell for it and walked in thinking it was an art gallery and it wasn't. And <laughs> I felt, uh, I felt pretty dumb in that moment. So. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see you in a few days and we'll have a great time. Yes. It's going to be very fun. Um, let me know if you want me to bring a real estate agent uh, in case you want to move to Kansas uh -huh. city. It's mm -hmm. not a bad place. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's funny because Kansas City, years and years ago, a decade ago, was the antagonistic city of strong towns. It was my, well, you don't, you you definitely don't remember Dave Letterman. David Letterman used to, um, when he would do his top 10 list, he would say from the home office in, I think he said Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There was some, there was some TV network that didn't run Dave Letterman in his normal 1030 slot. They showed like, a Golden Girls rerun or something. I don't know. Some some like old like mash or something. And then would put him on later and they would make fun of them every every day. And Kansas City was my uh, you know, Sioux Falls, South Dakota for Letterman. It was the city that I was antagonistic with and made fun of me. Um, because I did. I went there once and I had like a group of people who were very uh um mean. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, I'll tell you this story next week. It, 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 there was a, I mean, there was like a whole like urbanist forum started to kind of bash me and, and bash my insights and stuff. Yeah. But I, but you know, I pointed out things like there's no traffic in your downtown. Like what the hell do you have these one way streets for? There's no traffic here. Like this is really dumb. And you know, we started off on the wrong foot and then we since rebuilt it. And I have to say that I, there's a lot about Kansas City that bothers me, um, you know, like everything. <laughs> uh, Kansas City is has embraced the horizontal development pattern more than yes. just about any other place yeah. in the Midwest. Um, and there's a stubborn insistence at City Hall often that this is like the right way to do things. And throughout your like chambers and other like leadership communities. Um, but the the other side of the equation has grown really strong and become really, uh, I think, good advocates for some really smart policies. And it's it's really grown on me a lot. So I'm excited to come back and chat with them. That's fascinating. I you know I'm I've been in Kansas City now for ten years, and although I haven't been civically engaged that entire time because I've been you know I was too young to really be in that world. I definitely feel that Kansas City has changed dramatically since I've even moved here. I, I know certainly since I was a kid, <laughs> it's changed dramatically. So that's really interesting. I we can talk more about that uh, offline when you come you come to town. We'll talk about that a little bit. All right. Thanks, All right. Amy. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye.
get that.